We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, finishing up these verses this week. I titled the sermon, Jesus Paid It All, and we have before us a a very powerful moment in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, There are so many moments that I wish I could just go and witness firsthand. To be there and watch this happen would be incredible. So that's our goal this morning, is to, to try our best to put ourselves in the room and experience this story in its detail and watch it unfold uh, before our eyes as the Lord leads us. Uh, would you join me in prayer as we, as we dive into this passage together? Father, we delight in you. You are our vision, and you are uh, our joy and our delight. You are everything that we need and so much more. We cling to you. We, we look to you now as we... Uh, stare into these words. We pray that the the black on white would come alive, that we would experience this story anew, see new things through the power of your Spirit and your living Word, Lord. Meet us in the exact place that we're at this morning. All of these folks, we come with with a past, we come with a week, we come with the the challenges and and the struggles and the joys of this day, and we meet you our sovereign joy, almighty God, the greatest gift the world has ever known. We love you, Lord, and we ask now that you would speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Basically, my outline is just the points of the story as it unfolds, the points of the story. Start with this Pharisee here. Verse 36 says this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Okay, now, we're so far removed from a verse like this and from these interactions that we've got to try to set the scene a little bit, understand a bit of what's happening here. First of all, the question begs, why the invitation? If you've been sensing uh, the Pharisees, by and large, they're not fans of Jesus, They're not hitting it off. There's some differences here. And Jesus has had some very direct words for the religious types of his day, the Pharisees, those legalistic um, note makers and list keepers and judges, right? The, The ones who were constantly pointing the finger and puffing themselves up in self righteousness. So, why the invitation? We would hope. It was to come and and to bless Jesus with a meal and to learn from him, to come humbly to him. We're going to see if, in fact, that's the case. I'll just say I'm a little skeptical at the outset. The other question that begged is, why did Jesus go? Don't miss this. I have heard passages like this preached, and the Pharisees are, are, are thrown under the bus to the point where you almost feel like they're unredeemable, that Jesus wouldn't care to love them as well. And we've got to remember, even the self-righteous sinners were sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus was willing to enter into this scene, I believe, because he was moving toward this sinner who may not have known his need, but in fact was more needy than he realized. And so Jesus goes. 
He was a friend of sinners, not just the outcast and those in the margins, but also the rich ones, the self-righteous ones. And so Jesus goes. Now, the dinner event, I learned so much about how this would go down in this time. Uh, the dinner event was typically uh, for a rich man's home, which just seems to be in an open atrium in the middle of the home. So it would be a, a kind of a large area. And then around this area would be uh, some columns and some areas that people could, could come in and, and observe this. There would be low couches, uh, probably in a semicircle or a circle, and a, a low table in the middle. And the reclining would take place. Everyone would lean, most likely. Of course, I, I do this automatically because I'm left-handed. But they would lean on their left arm, and they would eat with their right hand and reclining on a couch with their feet pointing away from the table, okay? And so they're talking and conversing, and this is a, to recline at a table, this is a, a big event. It would take time, no rush here. It's not as much about the food as about the fellowship, the conversation, the interaction. And during this kind of meal, uh, the doors were opened, and folks would come and spectate. Anybody, for the most part, was welcome to come in and observe this dinner spectacle, the conversation. They could uh, listen and take these things in, especially if they thought it was going to be, you know, a little intense, maybe some tension. This was entertainment. And so the doors were opened for this dinner event, and this was uh, a significant moment as it unfolded. Now, when Jesus entered for this uh, this very formal dinner, there were three things that were customary. Uh, this was just a common Jewish courtesy, things that the host would see to it that were done. The first would be this. When he entered in, he would be embraced with a kiss, a kiss. Welcome. This is a show of honor. You are welcome to my house. You're under my roof, and I bless you, and I show courtesy with a kiss. Following the, the welcome would then come to, to address the next need, which was real. And that dealt with the feet. Okay, now, when you walk around in our day on the sidewalks and the roads, you're not walking behind large animals, ox carts, horses, donkeys, mules, sheep, goats. The livestock of this time was everywhere, and people had these open-toed sandals. That's what they wore. And as you walk around, not only are your feet going to be dusty, it's nearly impossible to avoid stepping in some poo. The other thing that's going to happen is your feet are just going to stink. It's hot, okay? You're sweating, you're walking, it's dirty, and there's a lot of dung all over the ground. So here is one of the big deals in this day. You have to deal with this. If you're going to come into a room and everyone has these fairly smelly feet, you have to address that problem. And that problem was to be addressed with the washing of the feet. If nothing else, at least providing water for each person to wash their own feet as they come in. But those who really showed honor and esteem, which we're going to see on Monday Thursday, would then bow down and kneel and wash the feet of their guests to show esteem and honor. The other thing that would happen, just as common courtesy, was a drop of olive oil would be given as an uh, anointing, 
Just another way of expressing your welcome here. I esteem you. I want to show honor to you. Okay, these three things were customary. I want you to know this now because we're going to learn this later, but it's important that you know this now. This is part of understanding the tension in the room. Jesus walks in. No one greets him with a kiss. No one offers him water for his feet or washes his feet. No one gives him a drop of olive oil as an anointing and a a show of honor. This is a calculated and calloused display of the opposite. It's dishonor. You are my guest, but I will work hard to do everything I can to communicate that we are not on the same page. That's how it begins. Before any words have been spoken, this is in view. So Jesus comes, and he begins to recline at the, at, the, at the couch, and his feet are dirty. Now, here's the question that I wondered. What about the other guests? There's other folks at the table who've been invited as well. I imagine that they were the beneficiaries of these three things. These, these blessings, this honor was likely shown to them, but not to Jesus. We've got to feel the weight of that. This is a big deal. Jesus has been slighted from the get-go. It is purposeful. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 37, the prostitute. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Okay, pause there for a sec. We need to see this. The word spreads. Hey, Jesus, he's meeting in Simon's house, the Pharisee. And the doors are open. Simon the Pharisee, okay? She, in her mind, says, I have to get to Jesus. I want to see him. I want to hear him. I want to get close. I'm going. This was absolutely out of bounds for her. You could never have a woman like this darken the doors of a Pharisee's home. This is bold. It's bold for her to begin to entertain the idea of even going in his home. A woman of the city who was a sinner, um, nearly all commentators, old and new, believe that she was a prostitute, a woman who sold herself to make profit in this city. There's other things we're going to learn about her as we go. Now, she brings this alabaster flask. Now, it's, it's inside this alabaster flask, flask is, is some ointment, which speaks to its cost, its value. An alabaster flask, first of all, is a soft stone that was quarried in Egypt. So this is a, 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 a real significant piece of thing. It's not just some pottery. This is a, an expensive, uh, probably sealed up flask that she would have kept around her neck. And the purpose of her entry into this house, I believe, is to anoint Jesus to show him honor and esteem. But here's the thing. The alabaster flask points to that I think her success in her former life was real. And second, was also associated with her former life. Many times, it was part of the lure or the draw to the prostitute's home was the perfumes employed to draw and entice men. So she comes with this echo of her past, 
but she comes for a very different reason. She comes to anoint. She goes into the house, and this is how it unfolds. Verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Okay, so you've got to picture this. The conversation is happening, and in the shadows of the meal, there's a lot of people, okay? So you've got to see this. This is not the only person in the room. She comes with many others, and in the midst of the, of the crowd, she drops down, and she sees the feet of Jesus. And she begins to cry, to weep, sobbing tears. So much, though, that her tears begin to wet his feet. And then she does something totally unexpected. She lets her hair down and begins to, to wash his dirty, grimy, dung-stained feet with her hair and her tears. To let your hair down before a man who was not your husband was seen in that day as totally out of bounds and obscene. But not this woman, not here. This is an act of pure adoration and love, and she, she's weeping and crying and wiping his dirty feet with her hair. A woman's hair is her glory. And she says, there is one so glorious that I will employ my hair to wash his feet. Humble gratitude and adoration. Look at these things as they unfold. Her tears, her hair, She's kissing his feet. As she cleanses and, and wipes them with her tears, she begins to kiss his feet. I think it's important we see this here. This is a, a, a passionate display of love, but it is not sexual in any way. This is not some kind of advance. This is not an echo of her past. This is a new woman in Christ worshiping and adoring her Savior with joy and tears. And then she would break that alabaster flask open, crack the seal, and pour that expensive ointment out on his feet. And the room would have filled with this fragrance. No one is missing this now. As that smell wafted around the room, I think people began to probably step back and see what was happening. All of the men at the table would have had their attention fixed on this woman. Why did she weep? What was happening in this woman? It took a fair amount of digging, but I had to ask the question, is this woman coming to be forgiven? Or is this woman, woman coming because she has been forgiven? I think it's the latter. I think somewhere along the line, she has heard Jesus teach or preach, or someone who has brought this message to her there's hope for sinners. Even tax collectors are called to be his disciples. There's hope for you. And she places her faith in Jesus, repents of her sin, and, and now she comes to bless him, to adore him, to worship him, to honor him in gratitude and joy. 
I think her tears would have been recalling the sins of her past. The echo of her past. It was a dark past. No one's whitewashing that. It was dark. It was evil. It was wrong. But she knows the joy of forgiveness in Christ. She's heard the hope of what it means to be set free from your past. She comes feeling the weight of her past and then overwhelming that is the freedom of her current place. Gratitude and love abound. And maybe, this just maybe, she feels a bit of grief for the way that Jesus has been treated in this place. Dishonored. One so incredible to love her in such a way to be so dishonored that his feet are left without being washed. And she sees to it that he is honored in a way that no one saw coming except for Christ, which may be one of the reasons he said yes to the invitation. Now, the presumption. Here's the moment. You just want to just witness this exchange. Verse 39 when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and, and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And he does what Pharisees do. He points the finger and he passes judgment. This is a very fascinating exchange. Number one, don't miss this. When the Pharisee who had invited him, he, he, he said to himself, he didn't say this out loud. This is happening inside his head. He is passing judgment without a word. But I, I bet the look is there. That judgment, that stare. He said to himself, we're going to come back to that. You might underline that in your Bible because it's going to be fun to see how this happens. He says this to himself. Now, what does he say? Well, clearly this man is not a prophet. He doesn't know who this woman is. If he was a prophet, he would never let that woman do what she's doing. What does this tell us about this Pharisee? Not only does he not see Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, he now has concluded that He's not even a prophet. He's not from God. What a fool. He's ignorant. He cannot be a prophet. But don't miss this. He doesn't condemn Jesus for wrongdoing. He presumes his ignorance. This is kind of a big point. Think about it. Do you realize that even Jesus' worst enemies never accused him of being inappropriate with a woman? Not once, ever. There was never an allegation or an accusation that was even spoken against Jesus as if somehow he was impure in his dealings with women. And this man doesn't even realize he's doing this. He's, of course, he's not accusing Jesus. He's simply saying, well, he just doesn't know. Because if he did know, well, he, he wouldn't do that. Does Jesus know who this woman is? Absolutely. He knows more than that. 
He knows what this man is thinking inside his own head. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said, I love this. I love how Luke builds this out for us. Jesus answering, answering what? The Pharisees thought Jesus answers. I'm not a prophet. Let's try this one on. I'm in your head. I heard your thought. And now I'm going to answer you. But I'm going to use my mouth to show you. This, I mean, this guy would have been just like, <gasps> oops. Simon, I have something to say to you. What an interesting addressing of the host. Imagine there was some conversation taking place at the table. Jesus seems to be, in some of these things, kind of snubbed. So at least to some degree we can say that they're not currently having a conversation. Now Jesus turns to Simon, and he's addressing him directly. I have something to say to you with a voice of command. Simon answered, say it, teacher. Say it, teacher. Not Lord, right? Not prophet. Teacher. He's respectful, but unbelieving. Now, watch how this unfolds. Jesus begins to tell a story, uh, the parable. He says this, and now he's addressing the, the Pharisee. A, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When uh, they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Okay, so there's some interesting positioning taking place here. Jesus tells this story. As soon as the story begins, this, this Pharisee knows he's dead meat. Okay, when Jesus begins to tell the story, he knows from past experience, nobody wins when they argue with Jesus. Jesus always wins the argument. His logic always supersedes the Pharisees. He shuts the mouths of the most brilliant men who would seek to try to pin and trap him. A moneylender and two debtors. Who do you think is going to love him more? And so he responds with, the one, I suppose, right? He's going to guard his answer. Well, I, I, I suppose the, the one that had the larger debt. Jesus said, You've, you're right. Correct. Whew, man, okay. That's good. I got the right answer. The two people in view here who had borrowed from the money lender, the 50 denarii was about a, a, a day's wage was one denarii. So 50 days work, Okay. 50 days work. If you make 12 bucks an hour, you work for 50 days, you're what, 4,800? So let's say 5,000, okay? You got a debt of $5,000. Multiply that to 50,000 for the second. One man owes five, one, one man own, uh, owes $50,000. Here's the significant detail. Neither could pay. They were both in the same boat. One had a smaller debt, but couldn't pay. 
The other had a much larger debt and also couldn't pay. Both debts were canceled. The moneylender sent word, I'm canceling the $5,000 debt, I'm canceling the $50,000 debt. They're canceled. Paid in full. Don't worry about paying me back. What happens to the debt when the moneylender cancels it? To have a debt canceled is to what? Is to have the one who cancels it incur the debt themselves. The moneylender now instantly takes upon himself the burden of $55,000, and he is the one who is to pay it. These are significant parts that we are to see as Jesus unfolds this story. Which of them will love him more? They both should love, shouldn't they? But the one with the 50,000 over the five is going to be even more blown away. I cannot believe he forgave my debt. But the one with five should be saying the same, right? He forgave my debt. He didn't have to do that. Now the pronouncement. Listen to how Jesus lands this exchange. Turning to the woman. Now this is, this is significant. So he has been speaking eye to eye with Simon. And he's just seen into his soul. You know how the eyes of Jesus must have just gone right to the very core of you. But he turns his gaze now to the woman. So he's on the couch reclining, and there she is at his feet. But he's still talking to Simon. He's not addressing the woman. He's talking to Simon, and he says this. Do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet. But she, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, Simon, gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Far more expensive. Far greater value. Now, at this point, Simon would prefer to just not be there, okay? If you're Simon, you're getting called out publicly in front of everybody who is in earshot for the dishonor that you have committed. And you are being shamed by a woman of the city, a sinner. And Jesus has you in the crosshairs. And just imagine that moment. Imagine the silence of the other people at the table. Whoa. Then Jesus goes on. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Jesus doesn't ever ignore sins. He calls it as it is. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little now he speaks to her we don't know her name we don't know anything about her this is not the mary uh, from the other passages where mary anoints jesus feet this is a different woman and he says to this woman your sins are forgiven 
And those who were around the table, when they heard him say this, they began to, to say among themselves, who is this who, who even forgives sins? He goes on, and he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's important we see this here. Cause and effect. What is the cause of her salvation? The anointing? The tears? The ointment? No. That's the effect. Christ is the object of her faith. He is her salvation. The love is the expression of her heart to honor Him as Savior and Lord. Great love, my friends, comes from great forgiveness. That's the story. That, that's what Jesus is saying. Great love comes from great forgiveness. I, I find it fascinating to think about this equation here. Where does forgiveness come? It comes from God. For God, so what? Loved. So loved the world that he gave his only son. That is the work of buying our forgiveness with his blood. He loved us and forgave us that we might in return love him forever. We love because he first loved us. Such love, such lavish forgiveness should not leave us the same, my friends. Do we really see what he's done for us? Amazing grace, we sang, how sweet the sound that saved a fairly decent person like me. And it, it, it's really kind of amazing, but it's not all that amazing, is it? Because I wasn't really that bad. I mean, I might have been a little misguided, but I wasn't lost. But now I'm found. I was, you know, sort of dimly able to see, not blind. You see what he's doing here? He's calling the Pharisee out in his self-righteousness once again and saying, you have to understand your need. You've got to understand how absolutely helpless you are and in need of saving. So our response this morning Let's go back to the call to worship that we began with. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? Anybody in this room? Nope. If the Lord should mark our iniquity, our sin, call us to account for who we are before His holiness, who could stand? No one. We should all be consumed immediately and eternally. And then he goes on to say something absolutely astounding. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Wow. So the question this morning is how great a debt has been paid. When you consider your life, you ever done this? It, this is a fascinating thing to do. I, I am uh, 15,700 and something days old. You ever ask the question, how many times a day do you sin? It's a scary thought. Things that you do that you should not do. Things that you don't do that you should do. Things 
in that category that happen that you don't even know you've, you've sinned. Sins of ignorance. Things not done in faith, that's sin. When you have the good that, that you, you are to do and you don't do it, that's sin. Anything not done to the glory of God, that's sin. We're talking sweeping categories of falling short of the glory of God. Do the math. Friends, we sin far more than we realize. You can't even begin to put a number to it. I wonder if, in fact, every day of my life I sin, say, 25 times. I think that's way too small. I'm up to a half a million sins, and I'm only 42. Now think about this. One sin against a righteous and infinitely holy God will qualify you for eternal wrath and hell. One sin. If anyone keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point, he is guilty of it all. Just one sin because he is so holy. Half a million? I'm a goner. It's probably way more than that. I can't pay that. There is nothing I can do to pay that debt. It can't be good enough. It can't be kind enough or loving enough or do enough good things. There's no way to dig out of a hole that deep because even those things are stained with sin. What do we do? We consider this. God so loved the world that he gave one to bear our sin and pay it. It leads us to humble adoration and worship. We're going to close with a song here in just a minute. This is how it goes. Jesus paid it all. That debt I couldn't pay, he paid it all. Friends, to be forgiven in Christ is to be forgiven of actual sins you have committed, are committing, and will ever commit. It's all forgiven in Christ. He paid it all on the cross. All to him I owe. All to him I owe. My heart, my joy, my gratitude, my love. Total humility, total worship. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now listen to the the response of a heart that has recalled this. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. This is the song of the woman in the passage we just studied. It's the song of all of the redeemed. And I pray that this morning it is your song. Christian, don't ever move on from this remembrance. What a great debt has been paid. I've been forgiven. I owe him all. All my heart, all my worship, all my gratitude, all my joy, all my days, they're his. Let's pray. Lord, we are undeserving of this kind of love, this this lavish forgiveness, this costly, precious gift you've given that you would look upon our debt and cancel it, taking upon yourself 
and placing, placing all of our debt upon Christ and then pouring out all that we deserved in wrath upon Him instead of upon us. We are the beneficiaries of grace, undeserving. And we are grateful, Lord. We are so grateful. We love you because you first loved us. We worship you. We make much of you. We bow before you. We give you our lives, our joy, our heart, and all of our days because you are worthy and you have purchased us from the dead. We give you everything, all of our allegiance, all of our worship, all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.